0: So here's the question. Here's the question. Last week, we asked the question, what is the gospel? And this week, we're going to ask the follow-up question, which is this. What does the gospel mean? What does the gospel mean? Today's topic is pulled from our current men's study. Um, We're going through God is the Gospel by Piper. Um, In regards to that, I know it's an aside, but we do allow all men to come. So if you consider yourself a man in here, and you want to wake up at 6.30 and come to Rudy's and eat barbecue like a man, you're welcome to come Thursdays. um, It's a really great time to be in the Word with great brothers. Um, It's one of the highlights of my week. So just know that that's always available for you. If you want to ride, I'm up. I'll come pick you up. I get there early anyways. Um, So just let me know. Um, So we're going through God is the Gospel by John Piper, and I wanted to pass along some of the stuff we've been learning Because I think it pairs so well and echoes what we began to discuss last week, which is what is the gospel. So let me pray. Let me dive in. Lord, you offer us rich news, rich pronouncements that should stir excitement and maybe fear. But Lord, it should not come back void. When we look at what the gospel is, it should point to who you are. Because in giving us the good news, you have given us yourself. But that can get lost in the religiosity and the, at times, pharisaical nature of theology. And Lord, theology should drive us to you, not to nuggets about you. So, Lord, may we know you better by the end of tonight. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Mm-hmm. So what does the gospel mean? Literally. Okay? First fill in the blank. I'm not going to leave you hanging. The gospel is literally the proclaiming of good news. I know these people well because I, when I worked at the Renaissance Festival, I got to occasionally be one. And that is the town crier, right? I used to be part of an improv troupe. We worked the Renaissance Festival. And I would get up on a stump, literally. And I would announce when our next show would be in the middle of the square. And so, as you can imagine, criers, that was literally their title, right? They would get up in the royal robes and colors of the king of ages gone by. And they say something like this. Hear ye, hear ye. All rebels, insurgents, dissidents, and protesters against the king, hear the royal decree. A great day of reckoning is coming. A day of justice and vengeance. But now, hear this. All the inhabitants of the king's realm. Amnesty is herewith, published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid, all debts may be forgiven, the rebellion all absolved, all dishonor pardoned, none is excluded from the offer. Lay down your weapons of rebellion, kneel in submission, receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love, swear fealty to your sovereign, and rise a free and happy subject of your king. The gospel is literally the good news proclaimed to a foreign kingdom there is a conquering king but he offers you peace if only you will bow the knee now mind you if the conquering king is a tyrant bowing the knee is terrifying but the conquering king and the gospel is the personification of good and you can know this Because he sent his son, the head of angel armies, to lay down his life on your behalf, his enemy. He is good. He is great. And he desires a relationship with you. That is what the gospel literally is. But what should it mean for you? We talked about last week the basic explanation of the gospel. If you remember it, God man, Christ, our response. We kind of walk through that so that if anyone ever asks what the gospel is, depending on where they are and their relationship and knowledge of God, you can kind of jump into those three things and give it to them. But at the end of the day, they need to respond to it because you can't sit on the fence because neutrality is space that the devil owns. So if you've submitted to God, to your next fill in the blank, What do we do with what God has done? What do we do with what God has done? Or to put it another way, how then shall I live? Here's the beauty if you've submitted your life to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are in union with Christ. It's weird, it's mystical. It is in many ways one of the most spiritual things that we can ever experience and also the most real thing that we can ever experience. There's irony and beauty in that mystery. He does not leave us alone. John the Baptist said in the desert, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. God promises to empower you with his spirit. But what will it look like? Will we speak in the tongues of angels? No, it's nowhere said in the gospel. Will we have an emotional experience that will leave us broken and we'll know we're saved? Maybe. But what he promises is that you are now part of his family. He said in John fourteen seventeen, this, that I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And he has sent his spirit so that our eyes would be set on Christ. The Holy Spirit provides us the ability to enjoy God. The good news points us to, baptizes us in, and links us to a loving relationship with God. And this is the purpose. It's your next fill in the blank. The purpose of the gospel is it gives you the ability to behold your God. To behold your God. I know that sounds like such King James language. Because we don't use the word beholding anymore. But in a way it is rich language, there's actually several words for it in Greek, because it is an announcement, it is pointing to something greater than it actually is, right, to behold your God, that's the purpose of the gospel, can you get a and pen for Deborah, Thank you. this is what Isaiah says, get you up to a high mountain O Zion, herald of good news, Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. The good news of the gospel is that Christ brings us to God. First Peter 3.18 says, Christ also suffered once for sin, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What you receive, and that's your next fill in the blank, What you receive in the gospel is the very person of God. That is your gift. The very person of God. You now have a relationship with Him. John Piper says it this way, it's simple. God is the gospel. That is, what it, he is what makes the good news good. Nothing less can make the gospel good news. It's the uh, next one on the blank. God is the final and highest gift that makes the good news good. God is the final and highest gift that makes the good news good. And until people use the gospel to get to God, they use it the wrongly. What do I mean by that? That begs a question: How might we use the gospel, the good news, wrongly? Let me give you two ways. Okay, number one, it's uh, as you can see. How might we use the gospel wrongly on your lack sheet? Now I'm giving you number one. We can make great and good doctrines the center of the gospel. We can make great and good doctrines the center of the gospel. Let's take justification. In much of what we inferred and talked about last week when we worked through the first three chapters of Romans, we talked about justification. We had sinned against the Holy God, and Christ paid the price for our sins so that we might now be seen not as innocent but as righteous. Remember, innocence doesn't get you into heaven. Adam was innocent before he fell, and he did not have access to heaven. What Adam failed to do was live a righteous life. And that is what Christ has done on your behalf. He's not only died a death in your place, he lived a righteous life in your place as well. The first 33 years of his life, or 37 or how many you want to peg it, was done on your behalf, right? Christ, this is your next fill in the blank, Christ takes on our sin and we put on Christ's righteousness. <laughs> Christ takes on our sin, and we put on Christ's righteousness. J.I. Packer refers to this as the great exchange. Christ takes our sin and puts it on and receives the wrath of God that we deserve. In exchange, we take the righteousness of Christ and put it on and receive the relationship with God that Christ lived for. This is the beautiful doctrine of the gospel but it is not the end of the good news. Our justification is not the end. Think of it this way. Piper says every person should be required to answer this question, and I want you to answer it too. So you're gonna fill in the next blank, and I want you to think about it for like 10, 15 seconds. Okay? Next one the blank. Why is it good news to you that your sins are forgiven? Why is it good news to you that your sins are forgiven? Maybe you want to write it down on the back if you were going to answer that. Take me 15 seconds, 20 seconds. Why is it good news to you that your sins are forgiven? Puts it another way, why is it good news to you that you stand righteous in the courtroom of a judge of the universe? The reason this must be asked is that there are seemingly biblical answers that totally ignore the gift of God himself. Think about it, a person may answer and maybe you answered. Being forgiven is good news because I don't want to go to hell. Reasonable, right? Not saying that's a bad one, right? Or a person may answer, being forgiven is good news because a guilty conscience is a horrible thing and I get great relief when I believe my sins are forgiven. I agree with that. I don't know if you've ever lived with a guilty conscience. It's pretty miserable, right? Or a person may answer, I want to go to heaven. But then we must ask why they want to go to heaven. And the answer might be, the alternative is painful, right? Or because my deceased friend or family member is there, right? Or because there will be a new heaven and a new earth where justice and beauty will finally be everywhere. If you're an artist in this room, I can't, um, I mean, I think of the beauty of heaven very much. It's something I dwell on, right? What'll, what will that beauty look, sound, taste, and smell like? But what's wrong with these answers? It's true that no one should want to go to hell, right? Forgiveness does indeed relieve a guilty conscience. This is good. In heaven, we will be restored to loved ones who have died and have passed on in Christ. And we will escape the pain of hell and enjoy the justice and beauty of a new earth. All that's true. So what's wrong with those answers? What's wrong with them is that they do not treat God as the final and highest good of the gospel. They do not express the supreme desire to be with God. God was not even mentioned in any of those answers. Only his gifts. These gifts are precious, but they are not God. And they are not the gospel if God himself is not cherished as the supreme gift of the gospel. Next fill in the blank. That is... If God is not treasured as the ultimate gift of the gospel, none of his gifts will be gospel. If God is not treasured as the ultimate gift of the gospel, none of his gifts will be gospel or good news. And if God is treasured as the supremely valuable gift of the gospel, then all the other lesser gifts will be enjoyed as well. Justification is not an end In itself, neither is the forgiveness of sins or the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. Neither is the escape from hell or entrance into heaven or freedom from disease or liberation from bondage or eternal life or justice or mercy or the beauties of a pain-free world. None of these facets of the gospel is the chief good or the highest goal of the gospel. Only one thing is, it's your next fill in the blank, seeing and savoring God himself being changed into the image of his son so that more and more we might delight in and display God's infinite beauty and worth. And turn to the next, on the other side of your yak card. Number two, and this ties in very much. We can exchange the gifts of the gospel for the God of the gospel. We can exchange the gifts of the gospel for the God of the gospel. Let's think of the new heavens and new earth. I, who was here for Aslan's Country when I did that series? Anybody at this point? You were, what great, you must have been young. I did a series on the new heavens and new earth years ago. I was just wanting to use for I probably need to do it again at this point. I love talking about the new heavens and new earth, right? Because most Christians get it wrong, right? They think... Heaven, you're in a cloud, you have a harp, you're in like this toga thing, right? Like they think that like we're gonna play games like who can, who, how many hands can we get through the casper the ghost head of Ben, right? Like we're all gonna stick our head. How many can we get in, right? Like we think that. Um, or, and it, it's one of those things that bothers me when like I go to funerals and they say, heaven's gained another angel. No, they've gained another human. Um, humans are not angels. Um, angels were made for the worship of God you will not get your wings. Like, you're not the Mandalorian. You don't get a jetpack in episode eight, right? Spoiler alert. Um, Like, that doesn't happen. Um, But I love talking about the new heavens and new earth. Um, And when we're in the new Jerusalem, let me share with you some of my plans. Some of you have gotten me talking about this over the years. Let me share with you. I'm going to spend the first hundred years I'm in the new Jerusalem learning how to play the trumpet. I love the trumpet. I think it's one of the coolest instruments. And I just don't want to attempt it on this side of heaven. One, because I know it takes a lot of practice. And two, I want to be able to play it with my new body. You know, to have that sort of background behind it, that sort of oomph as I blow into the sound. I love the trumpet. And you will find me many an evening on the street corners of the New Jerusalem playing the trumpet to the glory of God because I just want to. That's where you're going to find me. If you hear the trumpet in the New Jerusalem, you can be like, I think I know where AJ is. Come say hi. Right? It's going to be awesome. I plan to sail. Okay? I know there are doubts about whether there's a sea in the new heavens and new earth. If there is a sea, I'm going to be on a boat. Okay? And I'm going to sail around the world several times. I don't got time for that on this side of heaven. But on that side of heaven, I will. And it's going to be a big boat. And I'm going to need a crew. You're all invited. Right? <laughs> and hopefully, it's a boat I've built. Right? I'm going to talk to some fishermen I read about in scripture and see if they can help me put one together. Right? Like, it's going to be wicked cool. Okay? Okay? I plan to work in the new heavens and new earth. Believe it or not, when you get to the new heavens and new earth, you will be given jobs. We'll get to work in heaven. Because work is pre-fall. But the pains of work are gone. The bad work relationships and bad bosses are no more. It's the best work environment ever. And I've already put in for what i wanted. Right? I've told the Lord I want manual labor. If there's sports in heaven, just put me in charge of the grounds of one team, right? I'll mow the lawn. If there's no sports in heaven, I know there's fruit. I know there's wine. Put me in a vineyard. I will gladly work that thing for all of eternity, making the best grapes ever, right? This is what I want to do with the new heavens and new earth. I want a game night at least once a week, right? Y'all are invited to that too. Okay? It'll be AJ's gay night at AJ's little mansion, right? I want to visit a restaurant where when I walk in, I'm such a regular, they go, AJ, do you want your regular? And I say yes. And they know me. Hey? Okay? You all can come to that too. Restaurants are open to everybody. I hope you spend time thinking about what you will get to do with glorified real bodies in a sinless and perfect new heaven and new earth. Dwell on that. Dream on that. It's a good thing. I've already put in my order for the great white table, right? He knows it. Wings, blooming onion. That's what I want, right? <laughs> it's going to be good. You can put, you put in your order too, right? It's okay. You might bring out, I thought of something better, and I'll be like, okay, Jesus. Yeah, I, I trust you, right? Those are all good gifts when you think about it. And again, I'm sure my finite mind can't fathom all the cool stuff I'll get to experience and I can't can't even imagine. But I have to ask a very important question to know if I have exchanged the gifts of the gospel for the God of the gospel when I dwell on the new heavens and new earth. And that's this next question. It's your next fill in the blank. Would I be happy in heaven if I had all those things I just listed and more and did not have Jesus with me? Would I be happy in heaven if I had all those things I just listed and more if I did not have Jesus with me? Listen, young people. Do your greatest joys, hopes, and dreams in this life and the next include a walk with your Savior? Do you consider God when you make life decisions great and small? One day when you choose to go on a date Will you ask, how will this person help me know Jesus better? Is that one of the prereqs? When you choose a job, do you ask if it will hinder your spiritual walk or will it give you a chance to speak light in the darkness? Or is he not even considered at all in how you work? Do you leave time in your day for time with Him, or are the gifts He has given you distracting you from intimacy with Jesus? Are the gifts He has given you distracting you from the intimacy with Jesus? Have the gifts of the gospel been exchanged for the God of the gospel? Ironically, the God of the gospel is the greatest gift. Last point: the treasure trove of God. When the Old Testament authors looked forward to the coming Messiah, they, read the Old Testament, they can never imagine the intimacy and the complexity that would be offered. The prophet Isaiah once said, The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues and they shall come and they shall see my glory. But the glory Isaiah assumed they would see is probably much of the glory the Jewish fathers had seen. Think about it up until the Old Testament. Moses could only see the backside of God because the righteousness of God would have killed him. Abraham wrestled with God in the night, but did not see his face. Old Testament priests would literally tie a rope to their ankles when they entered the Holy of Holies. Because if they died on the inside, they needed some way to drag the body out. Because they feared the holiness and the righteousness of God. And what that would mean as it gazed upon sinful man. But we saw the face of God. The opening of the Gospel of John makes that clear. John 1 1. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. That's John 1 1 and 14. Jesus says to Philip, it's such a beautiful moment. I love it. In John 14, he says this, Have I been with you so long, Philip, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say to us, show us the Father? Even of the authors of the New Testament, marvel." At this Hebrew says has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God talking of Jesus and the exact imprint of his nature and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about Jesus is so complex. He's both a lion and a lamb in Revelation 5. Jonathan Edwards tried to explain it when he wrote a sermon, The Excellency of Christ. Think about the different ways we get to see and experience God that shows us His face and who He is. One, we admire Him, Christ, for His glory, but even more because His glory is mingled with humility. We admire Him, Christ, for His uncompromising justice, but even more because it's tempered with mercy. We admire him for his majesty, but even more because it is a majesty and meekness. We admire him because his equality with God, but even more because as God's equal. He nevertheless has a deep reverence for God. We admire him because of how worthy he was of all good, but even more because this was accompanied by an amazing patience to suffer evil over and over again. We admire him because of his sovereign dominion over the world, but even more because this dominion was clothed with a spirit of obedience and submission. We love the way he stumped the proud scribes with his wisdoms, and we love it even more because he could be simple enough to like children and spend time with them. We admire him because he could still the storm, but even more because he refused to use that power to strike the Samaritans with lightning, Luke 9. And he refused to use it to get himself down from the cross. Piper reminds us of this. The list here could go on and on. But this is enough to illustrate that beauty and excellency in Christ is not a simple thing. It's complex. It is a coming together in one person of a perfect balance, a proportion of extremely diverse qualities. And that's what makes Jesus uniquely glorious, excellent, and admirable. The human heart was made to stand in awe of such ultimate excellence. We were made to admire Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Do you? Do you admire him? Does the gospel mean those things to you? Will you call out to God to see his face? He offers it to you freely. Hear ye, hear ye, all rebels, insurgents, dissidents and protesters against the king. Hear the royal decree, a great day of reckoning is coming, a day of justice and vengeance. But now hear this, all inhabitants of the king's realm, amnesty is herewith published by the mercy of your sovereign. A price has been paid, all debts may be forgiven, all rebellion absolved, all dishonor pardoned. None is excluded from this offer. Lay down the weapons of rebellion, kneel in submission, receive the royal amnesty as a gift of imperial love, swear fealty to your sovereign, and rise a free and happy subject of your king. Further, you are invited to look upon his face. To know him and be loved by him. He desires this of and for.